Everybody, welcome to Coastline Covenant Church. And I'm also really excited to say hello to the people who are online watching. So we are streaming this service today due to the baby dedications. Uh, usually we stream the six. Something that you guys probably don't know or don't see, but we usually have about 80 people who are watching the sermon online. So it's good to see you guys. I hope we will see you face to face one day, wherever you are. Also, uh, something that you didn't see, but that we've given out to all the families who are dedicating their baby, these cute Coastline Covenant onesies. So these are pretty fun. There are some that say, I'm new here. So you'll probably see these around. They're, they're pretty great. Hey, uh, I'm not sure about you, but my morning started really early today to watch the Torrance Little League game. Watch them continue to play and win. It has been a pretty great experience. So my boys for the last, gosh, 10 years have played in Torrance Little League and have played with these kids, with these families. Chapman specifically is on these teams with these kids. So we've been really close with all of them. So it's been so funny watching these games through the perspective of knowing them so well, having known these kids' strengths and their weaknesses, and then realizing, wow, Apparently, they're really good, a lot better than we thought, and it's just been incredibly exciting for us. We have spent probably three days a week at that field for the last 10 years, so it's just been a total blast. And one of the things that's just amazing about it is that there has not been a moment where these kids, knowing them really well, have thought that they would be here. All of their attention over the course of this time has been focused on just simply winning that next game, and maybe if they're lucky, when the playoffs come around, winning that league, winning their division, winning that championship. That has been the only focus. Nobody ever talks about going to regionals and winning, or sectionals and winning. They have never for a moment considered a time where they might go and win state, little less compete in it, and there has never been a time when anybody has said, maybe one day we'll play in the Little League World Series. That dream was too big, it was too far out there. It seemed too impossible to any of them to actually make it to this point, and yet here they are. And I think that's what makes it so exciting. It's more than they certainly ever dreamed of. Tonight, we're beginning a series on the book of Acts, uh, which I believe is going to be the longest sermon series that Garrick and I have ever preached. Uh, we know that we're going to take a week off for Halloween in the series. We know we're going to take four weeks off in December for Christmas, but we anticipate that we're going to be preaching this book probably until Easter, probably what's going to be around 24 or 25 weeks. So I just want to get you mentally ready for that. We are going to be here for a while, and part of the reason for that is that we believe that there's something that we can really learn for our church watching the start of this church. We think that there's something incredibly important of learning how did they become a family, loving and sharing all things in common, while we are still in the early stages of getting to know each other. We think there's something important in watching how they walked in the power and the presence of the Spirit while we continue to want to be a place where we are Spirit-seeking. We want to be a place that has a heart to reach our neighbors, and so we want to watch and see how is it that this small ragtag group of fishermen and tax collectors and zealots came to lead a movement that you and I are a part of today. And so we see in their story a chance to come and find part of our story. 
And it really begins with the mission that Jesus gave them and gave us. Jesus said in Matthew 28, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and teach them to obey all that I commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The mission that Jesus gave them, it certainly changed their life. Up until this moment, their vision had been incredibly local. It had been focused on their careers, their lives, their families, their spouses. But eventually when Jesus comes, their perspective broadens. So now they're thinking about all of Israel. How will this affect their nation? But here, when Jesus gives this mission, he takes their perspective and opens it beyond Israel to consider the nations of the world that he is going to send them to. And that means that their vision is going to have to change. It is a bigger vision than they've ever had for their lives. They have only thought local, but now they must begin to think global. And it's my hope that in a hundred years, this church will have an impact that is bigger than just the local. It will begin to reach global as well. For that to happen, our vision And our dream for Coastline, it has to grow as well. I believe that the church in America is currently missing a kingdom vision that is focused too much on the immediate, on the here and now, and more what's happening on a national stage in our country instead of a kingdom vision of where the the gospel can go and needs to go. Instead of thinking generationally and globally, we are hyper-focused on politically and nationally. I want to be clear, and I'm going to say this again later on in the message. I do not believe that you can be both kingdom-focused and nation-focused at the same time. You will choose one or the other. You will lean one way or the other. And for Coastline... I want us to lead towards being a kingdom-minded church, but that means a lot is going to have to change. We're going to have to see that God sends us, calls us, empowers us, gives us his spirit so that the world might know and the world might hear. We're going to have to have bigger eyes than we ever have, and I want to walk you through how that can happen today. Today, we're going to begin by giving you a brief context and a brief history of how the book of Acts sets up. We're going to explore where the disciples are when they hear this command, and then we're going to reflect ultimately on how it affects us. But before we do any of that, we're going to be in Acts 1, 1 through 8 is where I'm going to take us today. If you'd stand with me, I'll read the passage for us. The book has kind of an interesting beginning. It's actually the author, Luke, speaking to the person he's writing to, Theophilus. So it says this, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. Let me pray for us. Lord, 
Lord, the book of Acts can be so familiar to us. Uh, I cannot imagine how many sermons the people in this congregation have likely heard about the disciples having all things in common, sharing amongst themselves, daily devoting themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Lord, we know these stories. And Lord, sometimes the familiarity with them can mean a disinterest that we can almost be bored. There are probably some in here who, who hear 24, 25 weeks in Acts and just think, King's Harbor is not too far away. I can go there. But Lord, we know that all scripture is profitable. It's God-breathed. It's useful. And so Lord, we are going deep into a book in hopes that you will go deep with us. Deep into our hearts. Deep into our own sense of calling and mission. Deep into our own love for you. And that out of that love for you, Lord, that it would touch neighbor, nation, and kingdom, Lord, with your grace and love. Father, would you meet us as we open up your text? We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. So as I said in the beginning, the book has an interesting start. The author is the gospel writer Luke. Uh, and so we have the, his book that gives us kind of a brief history of who he is. We know that he is probably a second-generation Christian, meaning he did not see Jesus face-to-face or his miracles face-to-face, but he has encountered the disciples— He has heard their preaching, he has put his faith into Jesus, and he has now become a part of the story. In fact, as Acts 15, kind of as we transition past it, Luke is going to change from being an author to being an actual participant in it. He's going to become a co-missionary with Paul in sharing the gospel. You can see when he says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do. We see there that he's trying to give Theophilus some context of what he's trying to do. He says that he's trying to write an orderly account, which probably means that Luke is a chronological history of the life of Jesus. Uh, Matthew is interested in giving you the Jewish story of Jesus and how he fulfills the promise of being the called Messiah. In the book of John, it's much more philosophical. It's written for a Greek audience. It is all light and darkness. Neither of those Gospels, we think, are written chronologically. They take it theme by theme, connecting the stories as they think they connect. The Gospel of Luke is a true history, and so in a lot of ways, for a Western audience, this feels a little bit more familiar and a little bit more normal. For that reason, a lot of people in America, Western Christians, are really drawn to the book of Luke. He's also writing to a man named Theophilus. The thought, he calls him most excellent Theophilus. And so the best guess what's happening there is Theophilus is a Greek name. He's likely in some form of Roman government. And the title most excellent is kind of calling him uh, governor or senator or congressman. And so probably what the hope is here is that Luke is writing this story of Jesus and sending it to Theophilus so Theophilus can, number one, be grounded in his faith, but number two, use his position to protect Christians who are beginning to suffer for their faith. That's probably who Luke is written by, who it is for, and what the entire thing is about. Now, to understand kind of the power of the story, a little brief history for you about Acts 1. When we hit the book of Acts, what you need to know is that Israel, as a nation, is just uh, a shadow of what it once was. That there had been a day when Israel, even though it is only 120 miles long and 40 miles wide, I mean from L.A. to Santa Barbara, and from the west coast about Anaheim, that is the size of Israel. It is a tiny, 
tiny country. And yet, even though it was so small, there was a time when it was the wealthiest, the uh, most dangerous and militarily powerful and significant country, and also a country that, country that was filled with the wisdom of the ages. There was a time when it was all found in Israel, and they were the most important, most powerful, and most significant nation in the world. The reason for that, for their wealth and the wisdom, was because Israel lived and breathed the Shema. That they loved God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And because they loved God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, God made a covenant with them and said, you are my people, and I will always be with you, and any nation who comes against you, I will protect you and strike them down. And he does that. And so Israel prospers uh, throughout this era, throughout basically the early part of First King, First Samuel and First Kings. They are incredibly important. What ends up happening is that Israel essentially loses the Shema. It's not that they give up on worshiping Yahweh entirely, but it's that they begin to bring other gods into their religion and alongside of the worship of Yahweh. So they don't love him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They love him with part of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they give part of their love to these other gods that are surrounding the nations around them. And as a result, Yahweh removes his blessing and Israel falls. Originally, they fall to the nation of Babylon, but then Babylon is defeated by Assyria, and then Assyria is defeated by the Persians, and the Persians are defeated by the Greeks, and then the Greeks are defeated by the Romans. And throughout all of that time, Israel is kind of passed around as a piece on the chessboard between the nations throughout every one of these kind of empires that comes through. By the time we get to the book of Acts, what that means that Israel has lost a lot of their culture, and a lot of their identity as Jewish people. They begin to have more Greek and foreign names. They begin to marry foreign women. Uh, they lose Hebrew as the spoken language, and by the time we get here to the book of Acts, they are writing in Koine Greek, and they're speaking Aramaic. And we find that they have been scattered to the nation so much that when you draw Jews back to Jerusalem, they speak every host of language that is out there. And as a result, with the loss of culture, comes a real sense of a loss of identity. And there becomes this hope that threads out throughout the Old Testament that one day, one king will come who will reestablish Israel as a sovereign nation and will take them back to the good old days. He will reestablish the temple and the worship of God, and he will make them his people again. And for the first time in centuries, they will be sovereign. They will get to determine their own lives. They will not be underneath the power of other nations. They will take the boot off of their neck, and they will be self-determining people who can live the lives that they want, the lives that they've been once had. They can go backwards in time, and that's the hope of Israel. And as Jesus comes, that's what they believe they have in him. They believe this political Messiah has come, and they have this hope that that's who he is. And you see this pretty much on, on almost every page here of the story. You can see that when the disciples ask Jesus, who is going to sit on your right and left when you come into glory? They're not thinking about heaven. They're thinking about when he takes over Israel. When the people greet Jesus on Palm Sunday and say, Hosanna, God save, what they're shouting is not that they would be saved from their sins. They're asking for Jesus to save them from Rome. 
when Peter swings his sword around at his arrest, he does so because he thinks the revolution is beginning and he is a soldier in it. And so when Jesus dies, as most revolutionaries do before empires, they suddenly believe that he is not who he was, that Jesus was not the Messiah. And when he raises, it comes with a whole new host of questions. But specifically, it comes also with a new set of hopes. Because ultimately, if the greatest weapon that an empire has is to kill the revolutionaries who oppose it, what does it mean when that revolutionary raises from the dead? They now have a power that Rome cannot stop. They hold the nuclear weapons of the kingdom that now they can truly stop Rome and now they really want to get started and to take everything back. That is what is behind verse 6 when they say, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? When the disciples are asking that, they're saying, is now the moment when we go to war? Is now the moment where you're going to become king? is now the moment where we're going to get power and we're never going to be oppressed again. You see, every time that Jesus said the kingdom of God, and he says it a lot, what they heard was the kingdom of Israel. Let me say that again. Every time Jesus said the phrase, the kingdom of God, what his disciples thought he was saying was the kingdom of Israel. And so when Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a little bit of yeast that then grows through the whole dough, they said, yes, that is us. We are a tiny nation, and we're going to grow, and our influence is going to expand the entire globe. They liked that story. When Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that is small, and yet planted, it becomes a gigantic tree that the nations of the world will come and set up their nests in its branches. They thought, yes, that is who we are. We are going to be that great nation that every other nation will come to. And when they heard that Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a treasure in a field, they said, yes, that is indeed how God loves us. So when Jesus says kingdom of God. They think kingdom of Israel. But look at how Jesus speaks to them. Verse 7. It's not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority. It's not for you to know what the plan is. It is not for you to wonder when the time is going to come. It is not now, he says. It is certain to come. There is a day when Israel is going to be sovereign again. But he said, you don't need to worry about that because it is not now. Now is about the kingdom of God, he says. Now is not about the kingdom of Israel. What he wants them to know is that the kingdom of God is bigger than the kingdom of Israel, and they're going to be the ones to build it. That there is no way that this tiny nation of 120 miles long and 40 miles wide, it cannot contain that the love of God that he has for the world. That he has given them his love, but his cannot be contained there. It is going to move out. And although Israel is his beloved people, he also loves all of humanity. The original plan had been that Israel would be such a light to the nations that they would send their people there to come and hear about Yahweh and worship him. But Israel does that really poorly. The new plan is that Israel and this new people, these Christians, will be sent out to the nations and they will take the light of Yahweh to them. This wasn't as hidden maybe as it might seem. Jesus actually talks about it a lot. Do you remember when Jesus teaches the disciples to pray? He says, pray for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. He doesn't tell them to pray for his will to be done in Israel as it is in heaven, but on the earth. 
His heart is that the entire earth will come to know who he is, that the boundaries are bigger than that. And so he says that they will come and they will go now to the nations carrying the message of Jesus and inviting people into knowing the love and the worship of God. And that the boundaries of nation, the boundaries of language, the boundaries of culture, the boundaries of distance will be remade as they all come underneath the fatherhood of God and become this great new family. He says they will be witnesses. In fact, he says they will be ambassadors, that they will go and speak on his behalf, and they will speak full of his power to the nations. He says that they will go to Judea, which they would have had no problem with, because Judea is, is, is Israel. He says, you have a heart for Israel, good. You will be witnesses in Israel, which they wouldn't have had a part problem with. But then he says, I'm also going to send you to Samaria. You see that in verse 8. I will send you to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. If you're wondering, the last time the disciples were in Samaria, they asked Jesus if they could light it on fire with the fires of heaven. They hated the Samaritans. He says, now you're going to be going there and you're going to be ministering to them. That is not where they wanted to go. Those were not people that they liked or had anything in common with. We said, I'm going to send you to Judea, who you like, and to the Samaritans, who you don't. And he says, now I'm going to send you also to the very ends of the earth, to the lands that you do not know exist yet. In a way, the mission seems destined to fail because they don't understand it. They don't have a heart for it, and they lack the power to accomplish it. This great call being given to these people, they don't necessarily even want what Jesus wants at this time. But Jesus is going to put the power of himself inside of them to accomplish it. They had wanted Jesus to take power. They had wanted him to overthrow all of their enemies, and they wanted access to that power. They wanted to wield that power on his behalf. They wanted to be generals and to, in a sense, begin the great jihad against their enemies in the name of Jesus. They wanted to get the boots off their neck and to reverse the position so that they are the ones now who have the power. They want to take their country back. They want to go backwards to what once was. They want control. They want to reshape the culture back to the Jewish one that they had once known. They want to turn back the clock for all of it. And Jesus says, you want power? Good. I'm going to give you power, but it's not the power that you think. You think that you're going to get the power to conquer, but he says, no, what I'm going to do is I'm going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. That's what we see in verse 5. That he's going to baptize them in the Holy Spirit. What he's saying there is I'm going to sink you into the presence of God. I'm going to completely bathe you in it. I'm going to completely immerse you inside of God himself. And when you are immersed inside of the Holy Spirit, what that means is that the character of God is going to come upon you and be yours. And in fact, it's going to change you. And he says, once I immerse you in my spirit, I'm then going to teach you my ways. You will understand who I am and what I want. And it will be the power that you need to go out to the nations and to share with them the good news of who I am. More than that, he says, that spirit will be in my abiding presence and it'll be with you wherever you go. There's a great author who's been very influential in my thinking on the book of Acts. His name is Willie James Jennings. He says this, what they want is a power that is over people. But what they, deter, just what they, what they realize is that Jesus offers them a power that is for people. 
Let me say it again. They wanted a power that was over people, but Jesus gave them a power that was for people. What that means is that because the Spirit was with them, that means that they could do the same sort of ministry that Jesus did because the Spirit was with Jesus. That means that they can then do the same work and the same ministry as Jesus because the same Spirit is with them. It means that they can preach the same gospel with the same power and authority because the Spirit is with them. It means that now they can love broken and sinful people the way Jesus did because the Spirit of God is with them. It means that they can now touch lepers and just share with those who've always taken from you because the Spirit of God is with them. It means that now they can bless those who persecute them, and it means that they can give their lives away to those who don't deserve it because the Spirit of God is with them. That is not the power that they want, but that is the power that they're given. And then Jesus ascends into the heavens. And I love that because he says, look, if you think that this is going to be about me becoming the leader of a nation, I'm gone. And they're there watching. I just think about this. He goes in the heavens and they watch and think, what? What? What are we supposed to do? Where are we supposed to go? What are our lives supposed to be? We're now supposed to go to those we don't even like with the message and the news of Jesus? It's not what they want. And yet they're going to do it. Why? Willie James Jennings says this way, you know the Spirit of God is present when people begin to do what they do not want to do. That they would much rather call down the fires of heaven and destroy their enemies or shun their enemies or conquer their enemies, but God is going to give them a power that is not over their enemies but for their enemies, so they're going to begin to go to them and love them and minister to them. Why? Because the Spirit of God is upon them. And where the Spirit of God is, people begin to do what they do not want to do because their hearts of flesh are being replaced with a heart renewed and transformed by God. That's what's beginning to happen. Now let's get really practical about this. Today, America is responding strongly and emotionally over a dozen different social issues. If you really want to ruin a dinner party, mention Colin Kaepernick. Or mask mandates. Or gender pronouns. Or how we should handle Confederate monuments. Or whether justice was served with Breonna Taylor. These are things that families and friends and coworkers now can't even talk about civilly because they're so inflamed uh, with anger and toxicity that to even bring them up will damage and harm a relationship. I was thinking the other day that uh, I don't personally know anybody who has died from COVID, but I had so many relationships that have been killed by COVID. Or what came out of it and what changed us in it did damage to relationships in a way where they just don't really exist anymore because these things, these topics, now can't even be dis- discussed about in a practical way. Uh, Garrick sent me an article this last week that was uh, brilliant and horrifying. And I don't believe that that should be true, but I believe that it is true. What he says is that as a result of the world coming out of COVID and the societal issues that surround us, he says that now the church has essentially been divided into four different kinds of Christians. He calls them one, neo-fundamentalists, two, mainstream evangelicals, three, neo-evangelicals, and four, 
post-evangelicals. I'm going to put these up on a slide because actually I think that they're so helpful and so true, you're going to find some identification with it too. Can I put up there a slide for neo-fundamentalists? It says that these are Christians who are highly politicized, even nationalistic. They fear that their freedoms are being lost and they're concerned over media control. They feel like the world is slipping away from them and they're concerned about increased liberalism in the church and the government. They believe that the best solution is to separate and isolate from those who think differently. This is one type of Christian that he says is present now in American churches. He says there's a second kind that's there as well. He calls these mainstream evangelicals. He says these are one step over from those neo-fundamentalists. They're conservative, but less so. He says they're biblical. They believe in being born again. They evangelize. They tithe. They attend Bible studies. But they're uncomfortable with politics. They're largely siding with the Republicans right now as the lesser of two evils. So conservative, but less so. Less nationalistic, but still has kind of a bend that way. The third, he would say, are neo-evangelicals. These are one step further away. These are people who are really concerned with the church's involvement with the Republican Party and with politics. They're concerned with social issues like racial justice, with sexual abuse, but they haven't given up on the church yet. They're still here, they're still hopeful, they're still orthodox in their beliefs, but there's a growing concern and a disconnect from the churches that they are part of. The fourth is called post-evangelicals. And I apologize, this, this is so short, but really they're so concerned with the alignment of politics and their churches that they're now at a place of crisis and of doubt. It's causing them to rethink everything that they've ever been told, to rethink the, the things that they have believed. They're increasingly not only taking a step away from church, but are likely not even in churches any longer. Now, the point of this article is this, that there are four kinds of Christians out there in churches these days. And he says, ultimately, if you want to be as successful as a church, you're going to reach one of these groups, maybe two of these groups, but the divide in our country is so great that you will never be able to go beyond two. And so you need to decide right now, who are you going to target and who are you going to try to reach because the gap is too big to try to reach everyone. At best you'll get one, maybe you can get two. Now I don't want to believe that it's true. Theologically, I have to fight against that because ultimately what I believe is that we are united by the blood of Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death upon the cross. That you and I are all infected with sin with no hope of overcoming that ourselves or escaping the consequences of it. And that every one of us, broken and needy from sin, come to Christ and receive from him his grace and forgiveness and love which remakes our hearts, remakes our minds so that we are transformed into his image so we could live and walk with him. So that ultimately, every one of us, regardless of your culture or your, or your time in history or your gender or your economics, can ultimately all come before God completely unworthy and worship him for what he's done. And as a result, we come to the table of Christ and celebrate by the blood and bread that this is how we come. Not by what we think or how we act or what we do or how we vote, but by the actions of Christ. But what is also pragmatically true is that those things, sadly, aren't enough to unite the church right now. And it's not because they're not efficacious or there is not power in them. It's because we don't value them as much as how we think on social issues. 
Here's the truly tragic thing, that you, through the power of God in you and his abiding spirit inside of you, can lead someone to come to know Christ, and you are sent by him out into the world with that power to go be a world changer. That is inside of you, that you might be the person to bring the gospel to the next nation who's never heard or never known Jesus because of God at work in you. But if you want to change something in society, you want to change something about a social issue, you get one vote. None of us really have the scale to be able to bring that kind of change that we might want. Not even if you're a senator, maybe if you're a judge. But most of us live with strongly held opinions about things that we cannot change or influence. While at the same time there's a mission given to us by God that we actually have the power to enact because it's his life in us. And yet we've dismissed it. And we would really rather be with people who are like us than to be with those who are not. Friends, that is what's happening in the book of Acts. What they want is a nation. What they want is the power to shape their nation. What they want is to go back to the nation that they once had. And Jesus says, I'm not interested in that. That's not what I'm here for. I'm not here about a nation. I'm here about a kingdom that is going to involve every nation and every culture and every person. Look, Both the person who's overwhelmingly patriotic and the person who is overwhelmingly discouraged by the trajectory of our country are both thinking with a nation mindset, not a kingdom mindset. Because ultimately, we've been told, right, that this world is going to continue to get worse until the return of Christ. So why are we so shocked? Why are we fighting so hard? Why am I so discouraged? Or why do I have to fight so hard if ultimately we already know how the story ends? Why are we so shocked by where we are in the story? Look, God has given us something so beautiful, and we seem to be settling for something so less. And then when we begin to settle for overwhelming discouragement or patriotism or the margins of the extremeness of this, it's going to naturally get in the way of our ability to reach across to those that don't know about Jesus. Because let me tell you, the people who don't know Jesus don't think anything like us. So ultimately, if you want to be around only the people that think like you do, you're just not going to share the gospel to anyone. And the kingdom vision begins to die. This is why Jesus says, nation thinking is not what I'm here for. I'm here to build a kingdom. And the Gentiles turn from, I'm sorry, and the disciples turn from this. This is the beautiful part of what they do, is that they begin to get it. And as we're going to move through the gospel, we're going to see people who are going to begin to reach beyond their boundaries, their comfort zones, begin to reach to the nations, and we're going to watch the gospel begin to move. And friends, I still believe that same invitation is there for us today to be a part of the growth and the share of the gospel. But to do so, we're going to have to think bigger than, am I a part of a church that represents perfectly what I think? Look, if our hope for church growth is that eventually we're going to pull enough people from where we were to here, that is a real small vision for Coastline. That's a very small number of movable people. That if our view is only maybe we could keep pulling more of our friends over or we could keep drawing people from other churches, that is not at all the mission that Jesus gave us. Jesus has called us to go to those who do not know him, who've never heard about him, 
and to bring a message of the gospel. And I firmly believe that there has never been an era more right for people to come and accept the message of Jesus than right now in a time when they already are tapped in to their mortality and their overwhelming loneliness from the pandemic. But they're missing it because the church is trying to fight for a nation instead of a kingdom. And as long as we fight that way, we're fighting exactly the battle that Satan wants us to and not the one that Jesus sent us out in. Jesus came, touchable, relatable, sharing a meal, having a true body, and resurrected with this true body. Jesus was incredibly touchable so that you and I as his disciples can be that touchable as well, so that we can be like him, bodily represented in the world to share the message of Jesus. That means we have to think bigger and think differently. And that's what the book of Acts is about. It's about these disciples learning that their vision for their life is too small, and that the power that is given in the Spirit is greater than they ever imagined. And as a result, they see God do something that was bigger than they ever could have dreamed of, larger than any scale they could have ever hoped for. And the same power is available for you and I today to see that work at Coastline in the South Bay and in California. Let me pray. Lord, we want to be an influence for you. And God, to be an influence of you, Lord, we know that first you need to influence us. And God, would you strip away all of our idols or all of our hopes that would ever put any sort of confidence in what any sort of vote might do or what any sort of shifting in powers might accomplish. Lord, would you help us see that that is the shallowest of hopes. That even if we were to win and get our own way, it would be at risk in two years at the next election. God, would you not let us settle for small hope? God, would you not let us put our hope in any earthly king or any earthly power? God, would you never cause us to desire a power that is for ourselves instead of for the world? God, would you show up and would you help us to do the things that are hard for us to do and the things that we may not even want to do for the sake of the world? Lord, as Jesus in Gethsemane, with broken heart, asked God for another way and you said, no, it is only this. God, would you help us repent of any other way that we've sought power and authority outside of what you've done? There's no other way except kingdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, can we just clear our laps and um, let's make some space for God to speak. He's been speaking. He's been moving. Um, but we believe... Um, uh, that, that he, he, he has something for us individually, something that he wants to speak to you, something he's calling you to. God is always at work and always active. We want to be a responsive people. So, would you bow your heads with me? God, we, uh, we invite you here now. Lord, we want to get a um, kind of a, a heart that is, that is for your kingdom. We want to align ourselves with what you're doing in the world around us and in us. And God, there are so many things that want to vie for our attention, that want to divide us. And yet your spirit wants to call us together in you 
to be a force for your kingdom, not a force for our way. So Lord, now would you speak? Would you come have your way in us? We're listening.